Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. I'm Henry, and back with me today, I've got the irrepressible Belle Taylor. And joining <laughs> Belle and I this week, we have the uh, inextinguishable Hugh Benson. Belle, Hugh, how have your weeks been? Delighted to be introduced <laughs> as, as irrepressible. <laughs> I mean, it's better than Hugh, who's apparently on fire. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think by Friday I just run out of adjectives. You spend all uh, week writing content and press releases yeah, and yeah. pigeon, and then you're like, oh, I just don't have any adjectives left anymore. So must apologies. begin with an I. Must, yeah. end, must end with hubble. Yeah, well, those are my criteria for most adjectives, to be fair. Um, but yeah, how have your weeks been? Good, thank you. I've had a four day week, so it's been, I guess, a full on one, but really, really nice. Excellent, you. Also good. Uh, five day week for me, but. Uh, you know, you try and fit stuff in. Nice, excellent. Yeah, it's been a, it's been an exciting week. I feel like uh, outside of the world of health tech, this week was the first week I saw Christmas decorations, which always upsets me slightly when oh, it's wow. early in October. Yeah, yeah I guess earlier. Now. How is it coming back from America? Because this is feeling the UK versus US Halloween thing and Christmas thing, which I just imagine is massive over there. That big feels horrific big into uh big into halloween we had to go to a walmart at one point which is a whole different cultural experience uh which i recommend <laughs> actually uh and the halloween section was the size of like the average uk aldi it was amazing oh uh, wow yeah, yeah they love it okay should we crack on with some health tech let's do it all right so first story Okay, so our first story is why healthcare organisations should adopt modern data platforms. Coming at us from healthtechmagazine.net. Hugh, I know you wanted to jump in on this. To me, feels pretty obvious that healthcare organisations should adopt modern data platforms. Yeah, uh, and obvious it is. But we're, you know, 20 years on, we're still having this conversation um, about interoperability and about technology that works with other technology within the same uh, same environments. But the, yeah, this is a great article. Uh, it outlines what needs to happen and some of the kind of basic principles that organiza- NHS organisations should be aiming for. But it does so in a, in a way that really sets out one of the kind of big issues that people are going to find out. You know, if your urgent care team don't know um, what's going on in the hospital because the they, their platform doesn't connect with the hospital platform uh, and they can't tell how many beds are free, then that's going to be a real problem. In terms of getting taking it forward, uh, yeah, the article really sort of pushes on the on the the cloud um, based systems, uh, which is an ambitious goal for sure. Anyone who works in the public sector knows that cloud is a goal. Um, whether it's reality is much less certain. And while a lot of organisations may be there, I think there's still a race to catch up across the board. So while it is obvious that uh, modern data platforms should be the future. Whether we're actually going to see that anytime soon uh, is dependent on a lot of things, not least um, appetite, uh, not least people actually seeing it as a priority and funding. Funding is a very big one, isn't it? I feel like the cloud isn't even a modern data platform anymore. Like cloud storage has been around for what? It feels like that's been mainstream for at least 10 years. Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because like you hear of data platforms talking about the cloud and they mean it in a way that is very much about kind of processing things and storing these massive things whereas we're just like that's where my 2009 photos are backed up to <laughs> a dropbox account that i no longer have access to corfu 06 it's mega exactly, <laughs> exactly. yeah 
Nice. Yeah. All right. Look, before we go down that avenue, let's uh, let's move on to story number two. Story number two is coming to us from our friends at Rock Health, and it is that Q3 2022 digital health funding, the market isn't the same as it was. Sounding a little bit like uh, a grandparent who reads the Daily Mail complaining about how things were better in their day. Uh, It's a very, very interesting read. All of their quarterly reviews are well worth reading. I would say that I'm not a religious reader of them because that would be a strange thing to worship, but an avid reader of them when they come out. And this one is perhaps less positive than the last couple, but with good reason. So yes, the market is down. $2.2 billion raised across 125 deals last quarter. So that's the smallest funding quarter for all of 2022. And in fact, it's the smallest since Q4 2019. And as we'll all fondly remember, the world stopped in Q1 uh, and Q2 2020. So Total funding year to date, including Q3, is 12.6 billion. So you can see 2.2 billion, not a huge proportion of 12.6. It's unlikely that this year's digital health pot will touch half of what last year was. So last year was an anomaly. It was 30 billion. And it's not the most uplifting read. If you've if you've come to this podcast on a Sunday evening between Songs of Praise and Last of the Summer Wine and you are you know, looking for an uplift, I'm sorry. It, this is quite depressing. Um, but there is a there's a there's a silver lining to this. So they've basically outlined three reasons they think a lot of these deals are missing. So they think a portion of the missing deals, as it were, already happened. They were pulled forward to 2021 to take advantage of last year's funding-friendly climate, raising money last year, much more fun than raising money this year, as we hear from lots of people. Uh, They reckon that a lot of the deals are happening, but behind closed doors, so things like round extensions, venture debt, debt buying, all the rest of it. Uh, And then they think that the third kind of sector of those deals is that deals are simply not taking place so those are the ones that we should be most worried about um pew well i don't know if you want to jump in on this it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on what the last quarter has looked like because we see we see amazing raises every week and we see companies doing really really well does it feel like a suppressed market i think it's an interesting one like working with the clients we do we're obviously aware of an awareness of the funding issues right now so most of our clients have you know been having internal conversations about how they can ensure that they've got kind of a good a good footing right now to set them up for success rather than yielding to market forces as such but then at the same time you've got i know that some of our colleagues went to sifted yesterday the sifted summit and they said that lots of the outcomes that they were hearing from um panels and presentations there was that actually the funding isn't as bad as it looks because VCs raised the same amount. They just haven't invested it all yet. Um, So I think it's an interesting thing that we're kind of living through right now, this sort of, is it a pseudo, pseudo drama in terms of actual kind of access to money? Or is it just the fact that due to kind of the current crisis in the world, people are feeling that little bit more hesitant to take the riskier jumps that they might have in the past and are sort of saving saving up for the opportunities that they think will actually yield positive outcomes. I don't know. Yeah, it's a really good point. It'll be interesting to see what we are seeing in Q4 and then on to Q1 as well. Right, let's move on to story number three. 
Virtual wards are failing patients and clinicians from hospitaltimes.co.uk. So existing virtual ward solutions don't go far enough, argue three of health tech's brightest startups. And as winter approaches, we must bridge the gap. Belle, talk to us about virtual wards failing patients. Yeah, so here's a really interesting piece on how virtual wards can play a role in kind of supporting healthcare across the UK. Specifically right now, where we're seeing huge workforce shortages. Um, each winter, obviously, we see hospitals and clinics pushed to breaking point. And now kind of it feels more than ever as we still feel the effects of COVID on waiting lists and sort of the aftershocks of a country of healthcare professionals. Well, I say country, a, a world of healthcare professionals feeling burnt out, overburdened and quite frankly, undervalued. So supporting the health force is more important than ever. We know that. And I think people are feeling that keenly at the moment. Um, in August this year, NHS England unveiled a plan to increase the NHS's capacity and resilience ahead of winter by using increased use of virtual wards, amongst other recommendations. And their target is to have 25,000 virtual beds to be operational by 2023. But what does this mean, really? So virtual wards is the aim of removing beds from the hospital and transferring care into a patient's home. But in reality, this is sort of little more than remote monitoring. Um, and as anyone who's often worked with NHS or within the NHS or has been a patient within the, within the NHS or knows someone that had care within the NHS, you often know that the tools that are used for monitoring people aren't necessarily equipped to be digitally integrated and scalable across populations and work remotely in people's homes. So we're at kind of this strange junction where the NHS is pushing for this increased use of virtual beds, but doesn't yet have the technology to really support that level that they want. So this article by the Hospital Times outlines key six key areas of focus in order for virtual wards to be fully realised. And I'll just sort of list these out for you because I think they're really interesting. So the first is the right information at the right time. So obviously providing high quality, actionable, real time insights to save clinicians time with large volumes of data. Um, and as the world gets ever more data centric, that's more important than ever. Seamless patient engagement. So that's ensuring that patients have a positive experience. Um, so it doesn't just feel that they're kind of getting lumped with, oh, you stay at home with this tool. It actually feels positive for them um, and also reassuring for their for their families as well. Proactive rather than reactive management of health. So I think we talk about this a lot on this podcast. It's people sort of taking healthcare into their own hands and being a bit more forward looking rather than reacting to things when they're terrible health equity by design so i think this is a really important one i'd be interested to hear both your thoughts on this as to how you think they can do this better and it's ensuring that inequalities in healthcare access and outcomes are addressed and two ways that they recommend doing this is through scalable community workforce models but also ensuring digital access so for people that live in remote areas can't afford wi-fi whatever that might be ensuring they have access um, and then the fifth and the sixth are effective skill mixing and empowerment and effective task management. So I think with all six there, we're seeing not only a need for improving the actual tools, but it's a real focus on ensuring that the patients can use these tools, have a wonderful experience with these tools, and that their, their specific issues, whether it's a lack of access, whether it's that they're disabled and might need some help, but whatever that might be, are kind of built into these models as well. So it's a bit 
a bit more complicated than just stay at home and we'll, we'll control your monitoring from your bed because not everyone is set up for that. Um, but yeah, what do you think? Like how, how do you think remote monitoring can kind of morph into this more fully realized vision of virtual care from the home? Health equity by design is an interesting one, isn't it? Because in America, they talk a lot about rural and underserved communities and the way in which you can increase equality across healthcare, across regions, right? Because if you live in a rural or underserved community in the States, your access to those clinicians is hugely hindered by the number of clinicians, the quality of the service often, uh, the quality of internet, the ability to actually kind of communicate via the internet uh, and also the, the ability to kind of move around transport if you are older and you cannot drive in rural america for whatever health reason that's hugely problematic so health equity by design is something the entire globe is is looking at and trying to address and i think that one of the companies involved in this Fibris, have worked out a way of kind of increasing equality by allowing a lower band i suppose of staff to use Fibris's technology to essentially achieve the same results as a district nurse or a a nurse that can go out, which is an amazing way of doing it because it means that not only are you upskilling healthcare assistants and people starting off their careers in care and healthcare, but you're also giving them the ability and the means to stay in those areas. One of the biggest problems rural communities face is that people just leave because there's no opportunity there. If you can create technology that not only improves patient outcomes, but also affects the ability of people to stay in the local communities and work that's doubly beneficial obviously yeah look health equity by design is inherently a good thing so it's uh, it's pleasing to see three of the uk's kind of brightest health tech lights pushing for that yeah definitely i think it's really interesting as well like with the uk focus that yeah we think of these sort of access issues in these bigger countries like america but these things you know, affect remote communities in the UK as well. And, you know, like you said, having to drive to appointments that are two hours away, things like that are obviously pressing. But also the fact that in certain areas of the UK, I'm from Cornwall, for example, it's incredibly expensive to live. So these healthcare assistants, professionals, often can't afford to move down and stay there. So they, you know, it's, it's this horrible combination of really low salaries coupled with kind of inflated house prices due to second homes and things like that which is not for the health tech podcast but um it's this kind of thing which not only stops the local talent from staying there because they're driven out by the the cost of living in the place that they grew up but it also limits people coming in so i think thinking kind of more cohesively with with respect to health access is well like you say it's only ever a good thing but it feels in the cost of living crisis more important than ever Right, University Hospitals Plymouth introduces virtual reality for new emergency centre from digitalhealth.net. Hugh, over to you. So this is a very interesting story that's been framed in a slightly weird way, if I'm honest. Uh, This is about the the new urgent and emergency care centre that's going to be built at Dereford Hospital by University Hospitals Plymouth NHS Foundation Trust. Essentially, the key thing is that there's going to be a four-storey building, 17,000 square metres, linked to the hospital, lots of digital technologies uh, into models of care to ensure state-of-the-art facilities um, for urgent care, which is really exciting, and it's part of the government's plans to build 40 new hospitals by 2030. So really good to see progress on that target. That said, the story's been framed in a slightly odd way. 
uh, in that it's focusing on a brand new virtual reality dome um, that will give everyone, including um, mostly staff, but also patients, the opportunity to see their uh, see their new working environment uh, projected onto a very large dome. But yeah, so I, I think there's there's just a couple of questions that come out from this. And me, obviously, virtual reality has some amazing uses. Um, there are definitely going to be use cases for it within the NHS that are going to prove real, really valuable um, to clinicians. Possibly some that will uh, prove really valuable to patients as well. But my biggest question is: Have you ever done a dummy run to A and E? Because I I can see its value to staff in understanding where they're going to work in the future. But the framing of this is really pushing the benefits to patients. And I can safely say I've never thought. Do you know what? Just in case, I'm going to go and see what the future A and E will look like. So that when I'm ready, I can pop in and know where everything's kept. So it's a physical dome. I thought this was a virtual reality experience they were calling the dome. No, it's an actual dome. A film of the new space is projected across the dome to bring the new building to life. The, the dome is there to show what the future four-storey any urgent care centre will look like. So this is a tent with an old movie projector in it that shows you what will be there in the future. Uh, it appears so. There will also be some virtual reality walkthroughs for staff to uh, experience the flow of the building oh guys I've, I've seen a picture it's not i'm i in my mind it's the millennium dome with a massive film inside but it's actually just like a small it's like a small dome how big is the dome well it's like in the picture on the bbc there's just two people standing in it it's just like a it's just like a circular banner it's like a circular projector screen that just spans around a bit it's helpful for listeners to know that the dome is, one, not a virtual reality dome. It is, in fact, a physical object. But two, it is not a Millennium Dome-esque thing. It is, in fact, a large, a small two-person tent with a projection on it. Let's move on to our final story this week. What makes users stop using their mobile health apps? This is a study that was in Nature uh, by Tong Wang, Wei Wang, Jun Liang, and Mingfu Nuo, uh, and has been published in MPJ Digital Medicine. Before we dive into it, we've all used some form of health app, whether it is um, a something connected to your smartwatch or a I don't know a, a fitness tracker, anything like that. Before we dive into the five reasons people turn these off, for you both, what would be the sort of number one reason you'd turn an app off? Let's see if they match up to anything that's in there. All right. So I am notoriously shit at using using apps. I'll download them. And I mean, I have the Fitbit and I used it for one day and that is all. But in general, for me, the thing about an app is it has to it has to fit seamlessly into your life. So the second you're going out of your way to use it or you're having to remember to use it, that's one thing which stops me from using it. But then on the other side, if something feels too needy, I'm also I'm also gonna stop using it if it's like giving me notifications all the time to like, oh remember to log this, remember to do that. So yeah, somewhere somewhere between it ignoring me and it being incredibly needy is where I need to be. So that's kind of two main two main things. And also I guess use user experience. Like it needs to feel nice. And again, I think I'm not 
I'm not a good example because I'm not someone that uses games and stuff, but I can understand why these apps that kind of gamify your health are a good thing there because people like to feel that they're getting kind of entertained or they're having a nice experience or it's something fun. It's like Duolingo, right? They've they've managed to sort of gamify language learning so people feel like they're getting this skill whilst whilst doing something fun. But I don't think I'm a very good case study. What are yours, Hugh? Uh, I have an be- unbelievably short attention span, and mm. that's the key reason. Unless it can make, unless I'm planning on doing an activity and the mobile health app is supporting me to do it and actually making the experience of doing it better, um, then it'll lose me really quickly. No, I'm 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 the same as one of Bell's, which is that if an app is needy in any way, like if I get more than one notification in a day. My my main goal in life is really to be left alone. So if there's something that I can remove from my life that I've also added to my own life that is not doing that, leaving me alone, then it gives me great satisfaction to uninstall it. Our own short attention spans and desire not to be bothered aside, what do you think the top five were? I've just thought of one extra, which I think will be on the top five, which is probably about data usage. Ooh. So it's not in the top five. Okay. Interesting. So I would have thought that as well. That's what I thought. Privacy. Hugh. You've actually looked at the top five here. Uh, yeah, so the t- yeah the top five were attitude, satisfaction, health empowerment, perceived usefulness, and perceived quality of health life. Okay, yeah, those are the uh, those are the five ones that they've outlined as the the top reasons people stop using them. Um, attitude, satisfaction, health empowerment, perceived usefulness, and perceived quality of health life. I totally get three of those I definitely get satisfaction there's very mm-hmm. few health related apps with the exception of like workout apps which i find quite simplistically pleasing where it shows where you can kind of track your the speed at which you're running or the distances yeah. you're running or what you're lifting i can find those quite satisfying but that's almost me deriving satisfaction from something i'm doing rather than the app when i used to track what i was lifting in a little notebook that was equally as satisfying so i can get that health empowerment i don't i mean I don't feel that there are that many apps that I use or have ever used that feel make me feel empowered over my health. I think this is something where women's health apps yeah. come really in. So, you know, anything that kind of is used to track your menstrual cycle or things like that can feel quite empowering to people who then know, you know, have a predictor of oh, when when I might come on my period, when I might be fertile if I'm looking to get pregnant. I think that can be quite empowering. But Maybe that's because women's health is quite empowering in its own right, and so again, it's it's the, the thing is empowering. But I do I do think women's health apps um, offer a really in, and in fact, if I were to talk about any app that I've used for a long period of time, a women's health app would be the only one that, that is on that list that I've used over a long period. I think we're all also in the fortunate position that we're in. We don't have any kind of um, long term health issues, yeah. but there are people there are amazing apps out there for things like diabetes that will mm. would feel really empowering if you were able to track something that affects your life on a day to day basis. So I can definitely get empowerment, definitely get satisfaction, perceived usefulness. Well, you downloaded it, so <laughs> surely you'd know in advance, right? I don't know. Do they mean that it's useful? So that when that app gets into the, when that data gets into the hands of a medical professional, that allows them to make a better call or to know more about a patient's health history and health experience. Um, because that might be something you don't know exactly from the outset on downloading. I can't think of what else perceived usefulness might be, um, but I'm sure your article says. 
My my good friend Control F and the words perceived usefulness are not throwing up a lot of answers right now. Uh, well, there's there's obviously some sort of kind of subjective points of this, which is you know the app might be useful for managing a condition overall, but if you open that app and you personally can't find all the features, or it's not helping you to do that, or it's not showing you the best way the best way to manage your condition that works for you that's going to change your perception of how useful an app is there's some also, there's some wonderful sort of breakdown because the authors of this article took these five key points and then compared them against different demographics so things like age things like whether you're using it in a developing country or a developed country uh, and you know, two big kind of points that came out on this was that satisfaction and age had a really significant link. I mean, it's genuine proof then that people are actually using the phrase, I'm too old for this shit when using health tech apps. It's it's a real challenge that that speaks more about age than it does about the usefulness of these apps that if, if they're not designed with these markets in mind, then they're not going to work. The other one was that in developing countries, perceived, uh, perceived usefulness um, was a really important factor in a way that it wasn't in developed countries, which means that people, you know, using these apps in developing countries are looking at them and going, is this useful? If it's not, I'm not going to use it. Whereas apparently in developed countries, we're all just sitting there saying, this isn't useful, but I'm going to keep using it anyway. Yeah, I guess it's because, you know, we've got a reliance on, we know, fortunate we have NHS care, we, you know, are usually within a certain distance of GP clinics and things like that. So it's sort of a nice added extra sometimes for people to be self-managing their care, especially if to the demographic point as well, if they're at the younger end of that spectrum, rather than someone who might feel that it's more important for them. But yeah, that's that's really interesting because it, it throws at the point that you need to be having kind of diverse people you know, creating these apps with diverse audiences in mind, like diversity is needed at both ends to ensure that you actually get a truly useful app. And as a, a final point from me on this, there some of the findings of the literature review alone that starts the article are astonishing and frankly, a bit of an indictment on health tech, um, which we shouldn't really be doing in the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. But we're looking at, you know, they the authors look at studies that say uh, you know, only 2.58% of 190,000 users who downloaded an app were active users for at least one week. That's how quickly people are losing their, uh, that, how quickly these apps are losing their customers and losing um, the people who use them. And what was the, what's the suggested answer? Think about how you can promote the app after people have downloaded it. It's so weird. <laughs> I think one of the things there is if you think of the reason that lots of people download apps in the first place, it's because there's a free trial or something like that. So I think cost also plays a huge, huge thing here. I'm not was cost on your list of five things. No, but I'd imagine lots of those those users are one drawn into a free trial and then just like, oh, I don't want the premium version, or it's I don't. There's too many ads. That's a frustrating user experience. Or they might be someone, I've done this before, being like, oh, I'd like to try a meditation app. And so I download three, see which one I prefer, and then delete the other two, and then potentially the third one as well, and I decide I'm not into meditation. Um, <laughs> but I think I think lots of people with these things kind of like to try lots of things as well, like period trackers, you know, you try lots. They're all offering the same service. So what you said earlier, fitness trackers, like you've got Nike, you've got Adidas, you've got Strava, like how do people make a choice? It's usually just what the branding is and what tribe or community they feel most aligned to. 
I think the fastest I've ever uninstalled an app was when uh, a few years ago I decided to start running again and I downloaded BBC's Couch to 5K app. Oh, yeah. Because uh, I, was, I was spending a lot of time on the couch. Uh, and in that, you can choose which BBC celebrity talks to you while you're running. Yeah. I didn't know that. I just thought I had to pick my favourite BBC celebrity when I started it. I got about a kilometre in, or it must have been exactly a kilometre in, and Fern Cotton popped up and was like, keep going. And I was like, oh, I'm down. I'm going to uninstall this before I finish my run. Like, what is that? Anyway. Fascinating stuff. Um, if you are the maker of a mobile health app and you want to come on the Pigeon podcast and fiercely defend your position and the fact that yours is better than the rest, please do get in touch and apply to be a guest. I think that's probably about all we've got time for from this week's Health Tech Pigeon podcast. Thanks, you. Thanks, Belle. Um, that was us analysing the health tech news so you don't have to. Join us next week and check out all the articles we've talked about and some of the best jobs and pods in health tech at healthtechpigeon.com. <laughs>